Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Seth is in the house today. Seth, how are you? Good. How are you, Keisha? I'm doing good. It's really just me, you, and Chris today. So you ready for our first question from Instagram? Yeah. Why don't we jump right in? All right. We're jumping right in. Okay. So this one actually came in last week. We didn't have time to get to it. Fly tying and fishing wrote in looking for some tips on irrigation for winter time in a greenhouse setting. They want to know, would you lower EC? And if so, why? Um, I think you really need to look at your light intensity. You know, how much supplemental light do you have and what kind of PPFD are you able to achieve in the wintertime? And look at some of your other limiting factors. If your light intensity is down quite a bit, um, like it would be here in the Northwest, if you're running little or no supplemental lighting, then most likely you don't need as much EC. The plant doesn't have as much metabolism going on and it can't really take advantage of that. So I would say yes. Making that call, though, is certainly a lot easier with uh, some sort of sensor to tell you where your EC baseline is at in the soil and where it's headed throughout the grow. Well, we do know a thing or two about sensors, so good luck out there flying, tying, and fishing. Let us know if you need anything else there. All right. Um, Bilbo just dropped a question in the chat. Bilbo, you want to go ahead and speak to it? Sure. What can cause light bleaching on the tops of apical flower structures? Um, so like when we're talking about getting really, really close to the lights, uh, that level of light intensity hits to a point where it's pretty much like a sunburn. You don't have enough chlorophyll and chloroplast to actually absorb all that light, nor can the plant keep up with metabolism. So basically the leaf temp goes up and uh, the plant slowly dies. It bleaches out the chlorophyll and that's what we see. That's, that's my best explanation. Is it a function of missing inputs? Uh, sometimes it can be for sure. You know, if you're way too low on EC or you don't have enough uh, CO2, but a lot of times if you were to look at where some of those are, at least in my experience, they are, you know, they might be at 18 or 1900 PPFD, a full foot or two above the rest of the canopy where, you know, the rest of the plants at a thousand or 1100. Ooh, I like all the details. <laughs> yes. All right. 31 cm form lights. 31 centimeters from the lights. Um, what from the I would probably, the next thing I do, Bilbo, is go look at the surface temperature with a laser thermometer. Have you checked that out? Gotcha. Where, what, what was it sitting at? Just out of curiosity. I'd have to go and grab the, the data from the crop registration. I don't have Okay. Did it, did it seem super high to you? You know, like above 90 degrees? No. Okay. No. Well, that's why I, I was leaning into, you know, maybe we're missing inputs. We have our EC finally uh, up in the four that we're dripping. Okay. Um, so I thought maybe there's just this. Do you know what you're at? You know, do you have any kind of sensor in your substrate right now that you can yeah, check? Yeah. What's the it ECs we're, we're in vegetative stacking okay. in between uh, eight and 10 EC. Okay. Yeah. That's not terribly low at all. What's your, what's your CO2 doing in the room? Um, it, Caps at fourteen hundred, so it's usually okay. fifty ppm between fourteen fifty and thirteen fifty. Okay, yeah. One thing to definitely check with the CO two is make sure your uh, in room sensor is calibrated, the one that controls your CO two system, mm. and then um, 
Otherwise, I don't, I mean, if you're only getting 11 to 1200 PPFD, that might not be doing the light bleach thing and it's not high temp. Right. Um, how often does it happen? In past harvest groups, it's happened in isolated areas. Uh, mm-hmm. In the current harvest group, it is more throughout, but I, I have a sneaky feeling that somehow it's, it, it could be tied to the EC because this is the first time we've had a drip EC um, breach. 3.5 mm-hmm. so and that's usually where i do cap my input ec um i'm not going to say for sure that that's the cause of it but that could definitely be something that's a little out of line there and it definitely seems like maybe an input thing being that's kind of spreading to more of the room you know if you only saw it a little bit here and there but now it's everywhere could be in co- input i don't think it would be a viroid kind of issue but uh, when you say an input challenge as in my input is actually breaching a, a zone where the plant's not metabolizing it or I mean there's not even really tip burn so so if we saw like one one bud that was bleached that looked close to the lights right like that's concerning but if it's a, a lot more widespread throughout the room and it's not one hot spot or one particularly tall plant then it seems like it's a more widespread issue that probably is related to a common input or lack of it yeah that, that's one one reason I would check, you know, all of your sensors, particularly your CO2 sensor in the room to make sure that's actually what you're getting. Right. Because in, in a sense, I could be choking them off. Yeah. If you, you know, if you were shooting for 1200 or 1300 and you actually only had six, um, that's <laughs> tough to chase. You know, you're kind of just chasing your tail at that point going like, man, I'm good. But really, you're not, you know. Okay, I'll look into it. Yeah, it's that that would be the place I'd start, honestly. I love it. Thank you, Bilbo, for like sharing your your data, your crop registration info. This is great. We love it. All right. Ryan is in the house. We talked earlier. Ryan is in Maine. Ryan, you want to unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question? Yes. How are you guys? Good. Welcome. Thank you. So I'm new to running an automatic irrigation system. Um, I have a system that I put together myself and I'm currently only using it in flower and I'm trying to transfer over to using it in veg as well. Um, I'm worried about as I transfer over, I don't want to overwater in veg and have root rot form slowing my growth. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have any tips that I could do to help prevent that? Uh, probably one of the easiest ones is going with a much smaller medium. Are you rooting into your flower pot or are you rooting into a smaller pot? So I root into uh, solo cups. Oh, yeah. And then I transfer over to a one gallon pot when I okay. uh, bring it into flower. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly use an automatic irrigation system. Um, it's particularly useful if you have something like uh, the Solus to go check right before you water and make sure my, a bunch of your plants are low enough in, in uh, water content to actually put on new water that day. Yep. And then, other than that, um, do you have, you know, a reservoir for your flower room and a reservoir for your bedroom? Or are you planning on sharing that input fertilizer? No, I have uh, individual tanks for each room. Perfect. Then, yeah, I would I would just make sure you've got some really slow drippers in veg, too, so you can actually put on a very small amount of water if you want to. Okay. So. Now, would would you run it um, with them in the solo cups or wait until they kind of establish a root system and then kind of run the irrigation system once I get them in the gallons? Um, you could run them in the solo cups. It just depends on, you know, how uh, porous that media is and how easily you're able to water them consistently. Okay. Like if you're running like a, like a high, uh, perlite, con- 
a high perlite content in there so that it dries out really easily. That's yep. where, you know, classically a lot of people can just go hit them all till they run off every day or every other day in the beginning okay. and then get them to grow that way. You can put the drip stakes in there. Um, it just depends. I mean, if you're only in those solo cups for like seven days, that might be a step that's not totally necessary. Right. And that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Like I would like, I would like to veg for like three weeks and then mm. put the flower. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how to get my plants to grow the fastest without, um, dealing with rot and overwater. Yeah. I mean, the big thing is sticking with a smaller, very porous media. That's the big thing is so when you water, you can't overwater because it's always going to drain back to, you know, a lower water content with a lot of air porosity in there. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Ryan, great question. Thank you so much. Good luck out there. Keep us posted too, especially since you said all that cold weather is coming your way over in Maine. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to keep on moving through Instagram. Remember, anybody who's on with this live, this is your chance to get your questions answered by the expert, Seth. All right, so we had someone write in looking for recommendations to increase substrate EC in early flower. They wrote that they're feeding at 2.4 ECC and struggling to stack EC above two. Yeah, I mean, there's a few things to look at. You know, number one is how much runoff you're pushing. If you're asking this question, you're probably pushing very little to no runoff. So your first option when you're already at this point is to raise your input EC. Um, kind of like I said earlier, I don't really like to go above, above about a 3.5 input EC. Um, part of that's for economic reasons. Part of it's because we don't need a big jump if we're already that low. The bigger goal, you know, moving forward in future cycles is to try to monitor and veg and make sure that your baseline at your wettest point is around a 4 EC before you're flipping into flower that way when the plant takes off and really starts to eat through or take up a lot of that nutrient our baseline is high enough that you are that you can build on it without it dipping below your feed ec once it's dipped below your feed ec it's very tough to get it back up because we're you know even with runoff basically washing up to the feed ec um, other than that yeah try to really just limit runoff you can even bring it below field cap every day but I try to, you know, typically only go about three days without runoff because with no runoff, I can't check my pH. At that point, I also know that I'm not doing much to restore that nutrient or that nutrient pH balance. So I want to really monitor that. And like I said, if, if you're having trouble stacking, you will hit a point where you go, okay, I have spent three weeks down at a 1.5 to a 3C. That might be where we are. And, you know, Plenty, plenty of cannabis has been grown at low EC. It's not necessarily the end of the world. It might affect quality a little bit. It probably will affect yield quite a bit, but you can set a standard for future cycles and document that and say, okay, at these AC levels, this is what I got changing. Nothing else. If I was able to stack better, here's the next round. All about setting those standards, right? Seth? Absolutely. You want to know where your baseline is and, really minimize those variables that you're changing. Cause that's, you know, another conversation too, as I've noticed um, a lot of growers becoming more and more high tech have switched to running higher EC as well. And the same, at the same time, you know, I've also met plenty of people that didn't grow very much for quite a few years or didn't change anything. You know, they had spent quite a few thousands of dollars on a certain lighting setup, irrigation setup. They were very set up to run a certain way. 
And then when they switch to running, like let's say rock wool with a higher EC, they switch their media, their fertilizer, got new lights that, you know, not only are higher output, have a more modern spectrum, but also aren't as old physically, even if they went from older LEDs to new LEDs. So <clears throat> it's important to really track, you know, what's actually working for you and try to identify that. And if you made a lot of changes at once, well, you might've just set a new baseline and you might have to worry less about which of those things did it and make sure you're keeping all of those different variables in range. That's it. Yeah, Bilbo, I see your comment here. Basically hold your ground and minimize changes. Yeah, anything else you want to speak to on that one? Well, I mean, I, I hear the I hear the dialogue, I hear the questions. It's 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 common, you know, this with a hundred or so levers that you can pull in any one harvest group, it's easy to just become obsessed with changing and changing and have a knee-jerk reaction to this must be the problem. I always ask what's different. Questions get asked to me or, or problems brought to my attention. And I ask, okay, well, what changed from the last registration to today? And think outside the box because it could be things that you don't normally look at. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of nail it there. Think outside the box. That's why <clears throat> one thing I, you know, always find fun is to go look at different grows or if I am growing, just have a friend come in and look at what's going on, especially if I'm running like the same strain as a buddy and one of us is having issues like, okay, what's obviously different, not just in the graphs, but like, you know, uh, just little things like, man, it always molds over here. Even though I swear my VPD is good. Your buddy walks in and notice that it's dripping off of a cord hanging off of the light or something like that. Very little things. And, uh, I think that's really important to just step back, try to get rid of your personal biases. I like to use the lights as example because I know I've, you know, had some times where we swapped out uh, HPS bulbs after like a year, year and a half. And after that swap, it's just like, man, how could I, how did I not notice that? But walking into the same room every day for a year and a half, you, you don't, you don't notice that it's like kind of like watching your hair grow. You don't see that every day. Um, let's see. Runoff pH versus feed. Yeah, David posted, please talk a bit about runoff pH versus feed. I love an overview. Yeah. So when we're talking about uh, root zone pH and runoff pH, basically we want to be in between, you know, around a 5.6 to a 6.0 in the root zone to have efficient nutrient uptake and also, you know, have efficient, a uh, proper distribution of nutrient uptake efficiency. And what I mean by that is if we're to look at a chart that lists uh, plant up to plant nutrient uptake availability versus pH, that's right in the zone where we have enough nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, and micro uptake to satisfy the plant's needs. Uh, plant nutrients are, uh, well, they're charged ions. We're putting them in as salts. So when they dissociate, we've got anions and cations. Most plant nutrients are cations, which are negatively charged. Anions are positively charged. So as the plant eats up those negatively charged ions, the positively charged ion concentration goes up. pH is the negative log of the positive ion concentration. So more positive equals lower pH. And as the pH lowers, we go out of that range of efficient uptake. So if you've got a 5.2 pH, are nutrients locked out? Kind of, but the reason isn't actually like a higher low EC level at that point. Usually it's the fact that we've gone out of range where the, the plant can uptake the available nutrients that it has in the root zone. So 
we're effectively choking it off from being able to uptake nutrients. And the end result might look like a locked out or burnt plant, but the reality is we've just got a pH problem and we probably need to push a good feed, probably, you know, a reasonable amount of flushing over the next few days, not to totally drop out the EC, but to restore that balance between positive and negative ions. David, do you have anything else to add or clarify with your question? Oh, and I should add a little more. Sorry, David. We expect to see because of that a small drop in pH of a plant's feeding properly, and we have a good nutrient ratio there. It's from, say, like 6.0 or a 5.9 down to a 5.5 or 5.6 is very acceptable and a good sign. Awesome, Seth. Thank you for that. David, yeah, feel free to, if you want to chime in a little bit later, let us know. We're going to keep it moving. We got a YouTube question in from Kevin. Oh, Bilbo also compliments your hat, Seth. Thanks. Hat game always on point. All right. Kevin wrote in, would you say running runoff water the last two to three days before harvest is risky for botrytis, even though your media EC is at a 0.7? When having buds as big as a soda can, VPD at 1.0 to 1.2. Um, I mean, if your buds are that big and your EC is that low, I mean, it depends on what you were running earlier on. If your EC has dropped down from like an 8.0 to a 0.7, you might be a little bit worried about, you know, causing some damage to the plant and kind of killing it before you go to harvest. Um, the other thing is at a 1.0 to a 1.2, you're certainly at risk of botrytis with those big buds. You know, the bigger they are and the lower your VPD is, the bigger risk you have. So your best move would be to probably try to raise your VPD to help deal with that. And if you're at your limits of dehumidification or AC control for helping out with your VPD, then yeah, minimizing runoff is going to be one of your uh, only options for trying to keep as much water out of the room. Or raising your temperature potentially. You know, if you're already, if you're trying to run 75, 65, you might be looking at trying to run 75 to 73 at night, trying to maintain that VPD when the lights turn off. Um, Kevin, you had me at buds as big as a soda can. We welcome photos. Oh yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Keeping it moving. Anybody who's on with us live, now's your chance. Start asking some questions so we can get to it today. Oh, Janelle has a question. Janelle, you want to unmute yourself and go ahead and ask? And if not, I can just dive right in. I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. Janelle has a question about watering. I wanted to know when you would suggest first watering a three by three by three rock wool cube after transplant after transplanting an AOK plug into it. So presuming that it, you know, the cube is properly hydrated uh, to begin with, um, the day after transplant, I would hit it with a very small, you know, See, three by three by three, that's that's pretty small. We're looking at like, you know, 20 to 30 milliliter max irrigation. Very small. But the beauty is with that rock wool, you, you can water it. It'll go up to field capacity. You'll get some air infiltration. And in a three by three by three, it's pretty tough to overwater them so long as you stick to those small irrigations in the beginning so that we're getting good water movement down through that cube. Janelle, feel free to type in the chat if you have anything else to add on that or wanted some more clarification, but great question. Getting a couple questions around transplanting plants from, from something that's smaller to larger. So yeah, progress. All right. We've got another write-in here from JT. 
Oh, runoff is the theme. Uh, regards to runoff pH, which imbalance of elements cause pH to rise or fall? What is the most common correlation between certain elements that cause pH swings? Uh, specific elements. Uh, so one thing you'll see, you know, definitely is like when we look at, say, nitrate, for instance, that's easily uptaken by the plant. That is why it, it acidifies water pretty easily after you put it into the solution. It's easily uptaken, pulls out. We remove that negative charge, it goes up. So nitrogen is on the end of that, but typically it has to do, I mean, at least in my experience, you've got some very picky plants that uptake certain nutrients at, you know, weird ratios. Um, the other thing is, you know, a prolonged time of running, not enough runoff is going to slowly, uh, upset that balance. So if you're building EC with a, uh, a strategy of running, let's say no runoff for two weeks straight, one thing you certainly risk is slowly disrupting that balance. And now your EC is very high, but you've got too much of the wrong ions. So at that point, it's really tough because we don't want to totally dump out that EC, but we've got to reset that balance. Awesome, Seth. Thank you. Yeah, so many good runoff questions today. So getting blogging inspiration. Awesome. All right. Well, um, Janelle just clarified the previous question. Um, wrote, cool, thank you. We do water them in after plugging the plant. And that's great. With that three by three by three, you've got a lot of freedom. You're sticking with a small media that has good aeration. Uh, the big challenge when rooting in honestly comes in taking, say, that same clone plug and putting it into a one gallon cocoa pot or a six by six by six rock wool cube because now we've got a pretty big volume of media and water for those roots to absorb anything out of. So keeping that ratio small allows us... Uh, to not have to wait so long for the roots to totally overtake that media. It also gives that media a little bit um, better ratio of breathing, I guess, with the air. You know, it's harder to overwater a smaller media in general, no matter what it's made out of. For instance, I really am a big fan of the 0.3 gallon cocoa pots. Uh, they have pretty much the same kind of porosity that you get in a one gallon or a two gallon. They, you know, a handful of that cocoa feels the same as a handful of any other, but that small pot dries out faster, even with wicking going on inside the room. So I think sticking on those three by three by three is a good call. If you are going onto a slab, I do like the four by four by fours quite a bit. Just a little bit more mass there to get a little bit faster, bigger veg plant. But also those three by three by threes are a great option to stack on top of a one or a two gallon cocoa pot as well. Gives you easy veg watering, especially if you're going with a quick veg time and a really stable media. Awesome, Seth, Janelle, thank you so much. And yeah, let's keep the conversation going. If anybody has anything else to add to the conversation there or got some new questions, that's what we're here for. Um, shout out to Bobby over on YouTube who just posted that he skipped work to hear a live sesh want to say thank you for all these informative videos. I do not have any Arroyo equipment yet, but I am growing like I have it all. Awesome. So, that's good to hear. That's it. So, somebody sounds like they're resourceful over there. Yeah. Um, so just like until, you know, we get maybe some uh, incoming questions in here, Seth, anything you're seeing out there with folks? We just introduced, we walked everybody through split graphs feature last week. Anything coming your way that you think uh, would be good to talk about with folks today? Uh, yeah. You know, I've been seeing lately over the past few years, there's been a lot of turnover in different media brands, whether we're talking about stone wool, you know, the kind of more generic term for rock wool, or we're talking about cocoa. 
Um, one thing that I've run into quite a bit is people, you know, getting really comfortable with a specific irrigation strategy and then just run and repeat, run and repeat, run and repeat. And, uh, you know, number one, that's kind of tough because if you kind of miss any part of your process along the way and your plants are at all differently sized, your irrigation strategy might be a little bit off and you might run it wrong for a while until you realize that. The other thing I've noticed is uh, <clears throat> just even small variation in, I don't want to say uh, media quality, but media consistency in terms of where field capacity is, even from batch to batch. And I think it's a really good habit to just constantly be keeping tabs on that. And another thing to have in your crop registration, because that's just another spot where you could be looking at why, you know, one run performed differently than another and see that you actually ended up with a media that didn't have as good of steering capability, either because it held too much water and was too wet and led to poor root development early on, or uh, was not, you know, didn't hold enough water and we couldn't run very generative. So we ended up with, you know, less quality and uh, less bud sites overall from, you know, being able to stack them earlier. So I think that's one thing I've noticed, um, especially as, you know, we move forward in the cannabis industry, there's a little bit more standardization when it comes to media in terms of what a lot of the manufacturers are offering, but there's still a bunch of manufacturers out there. And a lot of these products can all work just as good as each other if used properly. And that's where, it, that's what it comes down to is, you know, you've got to kind of be able to follow the instructions, but also be able to go above and beyond what the manufacturer says, because at the end of the day, none of us are paying very much per, you know, per unit, per plant for media. And unless we want to start paying 20 to $50 per plant, there's only a certain level of uh, consistency and precision we can expect in media production. That's just simple economics. And I think uh, it's just one thing everyone's got to get used to procedurally adapting to. Lots to adapt to in this industry. That is for sure. All right. Thank you for that, Seth. Cool. The, the questions keep on coming here. So David dropped a question here and wants, uh, was wondering if we can explain dryback for a novice. Uh, so dryback is just the, you know, typically at least the way I'm looking at it, and you can use saturation or volumetric water content. At Arroyo, we use wa volumetric water content to determine how much moisture is in the media. Um, dryback is a term that relates to the difference between the max amount of moisture that media holds or the highest amount of moisture that that media has held for the day and a given time period past that. So we could say, hey, the dryback is 5%. It dried back 5% between 12 p.m. and 1 a.m., let's say. It dried back between 10% between 10 a.m. after P1s and... 8 a.m. the next morning before we went to P1s. Typically, when a lot of people are talking about their dryback, when you see 25%, 15 35%, numbers like that, they're talking about the end of their P1, their phase one irrigations, what water content they reached then, and what the water content was the next morning before they initiated their irrigations again. And then when we're talking about P2s, the term dryback would refer to that between irrigation dryback and that's typically where you would see or hope to see a, you know, 1%, 2%, 3% value. I hope that clears it up a little bit. Yeah, David, let us know if you have any extra questions. But Oh, I think you unmuted yourself. Go for it. Yeah, sure. Sorry. Thanks. Hey, uh, real novice here, but P1, P2, P3. I've heard you use those terms many times in mm -hmm. the past, but 
I don't have a clue of what they mean. Gotcha. So, um, <clears throat> in general, P1 means your phase one irrigations, usually, you know, in the morning, one to two hours after lights turn on. We'd like to push it to two, but if the pot's too dry, you can go a little earlier. But that's your phase one, and that's typically bringing that pot up to field capacity or the point where it would achieve runoff. And then phase two is your afternoon irrigations that happen after that. Phase three would be after the P2s, you know, typically after lights off. And that's not typically something that we want to approach. If you have to be putting on P3s, that usually means you have way too big of a plant and way too small of a pot. And how do you know when you need to go to P1 and P or P2 and P3? Because a lot of growers will only do a single irrigation a day, especially the guys hand watering. Exactly. So, you know, the classic hand watering techniques, especially in a bigger pot, you're going super generative. So when we're talking crop steering and generative steering, we've just got P1s and that's that morning watering. Um, using crop steering to bulk up the plant is when the P2s come into play. And what that is, is putting more and more small irrigations on in the afternoon to stimulate plant metabolism and cause that plant to grow more, to grow at a faster rate than it otherwise would. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, David. Good to good to hear yeah. you from and see you. Yeah, appreciate great, those questions. Great question. Yeah, every once in a while, the take it back to a definition one is good. It's so good. Yeah, I love an overview. All right, we got another right in here from our good friend Cipher in the house. Um, he's wondering if I, Seth, he wants to know about storing large amounts of RO water. Any insights on keeping it clean before use in fertigation? Um. So dark cold and uh, ideally injecting some hypochlorous in it while during storage. That's, that's about it. You know, don't let it go anaerobic. Uh, don't let things grow in it. Keep it sealed up, keep it clean and uh, maybe look at, you know, what are your needs and how much is it practical to store versus filter? So if you're having to store water for such a long period of time, that the contamination becomes a big issue then you might want to look at storing a smaller amount and refreshing it more often to avoid contamination. I have to let us know if you have anything else you want to talk about there. All right, Bilbo, what's going on with this comment? Go for it. Ask away. Okay, so I, I get a little uh, decision fatigue <laughs> when it comes to programming irrigations, uh, managing different harvest groups that are in different phases of their life cycle. And uh, what I'm seeing is a trend over time where, you know, I, I, I can anticipate, especially when I stop changing a hundred things, where I can anticipate what's coming up, mm -hmm. but I don't want to um, be so... I want to be more conservative in my in my strategy and and not as reactionary as as I can be. So I'm I'm wondering if it's just uh, the fact that we have so much information now and we're seeing things that otherwise is you know legacy cultivators we wouldn't normally have noticed and that I should just maybe chill out a little bit. But I hear a lot of conversations around you know whether it's trying to figure out when should I actually give a P two as some of the other questions. Um, that you've posted or that have been posted today versus just finding an irrigation strategy and sticking to it unless you see something that is, let's say, outside of an acceptable range that 
any particular farm would set up. This is what I tried to encompass in my question here. Um, mm -hmm. Have you seen anything like that working in other uh, cultivation facilities that have, you know, a, a, as they call it, a giant war room and, you know, multiple people working in sections of the uh, a mega facility? Do you see that or is it? So, yeah, yeah there's. The, the approach people typically arrive on is, I mean, you, you kind of nail it there, right? Like it's really easy to hit that data overload and go make a change every single day, you know, to every single bench in the facility. Um, you know, the best way to do it is you, you already started with the baseline. And a lot of times, you know, uh, at least for me, when I first started really diving into crop steering, my baseline was uh, trying to use a porous media so I didn't overwater everything and running a terribly low EC. So number one was like, how do I build EC? Okay, I've got to modify my watering strategy to reduce runoff and run a little bit higher EC in my feed. Um, as far as changing that irrigation strategy all the time goes though, uh, yeah, during stretch, it's tempting to do it every single day based on what you see as those plants are growing. But the most practical strategy to develop because you know, the whole point of automating things is to slowly have it get easier and easier and more self-automated is typically to start to dial in like, okay, now that I'm coming in with the same size plant for a given strain and I have a rough irrigation strategy, I'm going to run this set of P1s, let's say during stretch until it does start to fall out of range, you know, till I start to hit the edge of where my dry bag's going down to. And I say, all right, I need to change this. And hopefully you can find a happy medium during that where you can set progressive templates that go, let's say three to five days at a time before actually falling out of range. Unfortunately, establishing that is going to be that watching the graph every day and then evaluating if it's acceptable to not make a change that day. And that's, that's part of why, you know, um, this whole intelligent irrigation or automate or, uh, artificial intelligence style irrigation is going to take a while to become really effective out there in the wild because we need a lot of if and then data on the types of choices people would make. And right now there's a lot of different parameters. If I just set, you know, everything to bounce between two points, that would be great. But if I don't have another protocol that evaluates EC in those decisions, then I might accidentally just flush out half of my crop and end up with a very split table where I can't treat to treat both conditions well. So I think, like I said, going back to the basics, you start with a program and you watch it until it starts to fall out of range and then you modify it. And then again, over time, take that data and simplify. Yeah, we got some uh, activity in the chat on this subject. Um, Bilbo wrote, you like you like to wait three days, like to wait two to three days mm -hmm. to make another edit to the strategy. Mikey wrote in, we have had to eliminate a few strains from that larger program, but we have found that a flat program works with most commercially viable strains. The few that don't fit the program always have a close relative that isn't as temperamental. <clears throat> yeah, and you know, I think to your point, Mikey, a few strains that don't work. Another thing is... Uh, if you can monocrop rooms, that also makes your life way easier. Mm. You know, the more you can run uh, small to medium sized rooms instead of huge rooms and run more of them, the more freedom you have to really dial that in and make it a lot easier on yourself. Um, and to answer your question, Bilbo, uh, yes, <laughs> but it is a big challenge to, so first automation is going to be through open sprinkler. Um, that's currently in beta testing and we're really nailing that before re releasing it to the public because, Hey, these are your crops. We don't want to do anything to endanger them. Um, 
as far as making the artificial intelligence part of that portion. We have data scientists working on that, and it's going to take a little bit of time. And a big part of that is because we're going to be able to work with our customers and gather, you know, uh, what are some of those responsible if and then decisions that they're making out there and see, you know, what's actually working out in the world. Because fortunately, we work with, you know, the best growers across the country and even other countries now that uh, are helping us, you know, see what works and what doesn't. We're using all of this incoming data as far as just basic meta environment and stuff, because, you know, we can correlate simple things. Like when I talk about VPD in relation to mold and your area geographically, that's based on very simple raw data. There's nothing special that we have to see about how you program things. It's just, okay, this is an industry struggle that we can very much see. And uh, we can apply that data in ways that helps our customers. And also really at the end of the day, the grower has to stay involved even when stuff is automated. So Right. Just, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, once it's out, there's still going to be a lot of grower input required to make any of that software work. I think, I think that's something a lot of people, you know, wish for, <laughs> for it to be as, you know, automated and easy as possible. But there's still a craft portion to this, even on a bigger scale. You know, everyone's got to differentiate themselves some way if everyone's growing the exact same product um there's no it's not an exciting market anymore is it no not to me <laughs> awesome bilbo thank you so much for this topic it's great um chris actually just had a follow-up on the ro and hypochlorous <laughs> question um wants to know would running it in my humidifiers be wise any feedback on that Seth? Uh, I mean, yeah, if your humidifier has, you know, takes a while to go through water, then quite possibly. Um, I definitely think it's a great tool to clean said humidifiers on a very regular basis to make sure you don't have contamination inside of your humidifier tanks or lines. Wonderful. Saifa, thank you so much for that question. All right. I want to make sure we get to YouTube because we have a few going on over there. Nana wrote in, hi, just wondering how plausible, if at all, it is to implement crop steering strategies in recirculating flood and drain. Uh, completely possible. Um, it depends on your media size. And, and uh, I will state we have customers that do exactly that. You know, they're running uh, lower labor operations and typically using a smaller, you know, more traditional flood and drain, uh, friendly media. So pushing like a Hugo or a plant that's bigger than two or three feet might be pushing it, but you can absolutely crop steer with a flood and drain situation. You know, um, if we go to way classic flood and drain systems that had like clay pellet, hydroton or hydroton clay pellets in there and hanging roots, you know, we pretty much were vegetative. We had to flood that super frequently. Once we throw rock wool into the equation, and we're actually using that flood and drain system to soak the block and then dry it out. We actually do have the opportunity to put on, say, you know, a P1 and multiple P2s. So at that point, it's about saying, all right, we really have to make sure we build a plant structure that's an appropriate size for the media so we can control that dryback and actually use the flood and drain as a crop steering tool. If I've got a big media and a small plant, I'm going to only be able to go generative and same thing. If I've got a small media that doesn't hold enough water, I'll have to go very vegetative. So I actually encourage people to do this. And as far as uh, rock wool goes, I really enjoy using that in bedrooms. It's really simple. You know, if I can isolate a strain to a tray, 
my irrigation is insanely easy on, you know, like a Delta 10. Not a great question. And it sounds like you might want to check out a demo. So be sure to click the link so you can, we can talk to you about how we can help you out. Awesome. All right. Moving through these questions. We're rounding out the hour, folks. So if you have any questions, now's the time to ask it. Type it in the chat. B-Town wrote in, if you transplant your clones into one gallon pots and you water them the first time by hand, how much dryback do they need and how much, how much shots to give them in the first irrigation days? And they are dealing with a micro drip system. It looks like, uh, you know, my biggest advice there would be when you go to hydrate your cocoa blocks, um, you know, number one, if you can test them, do it. Number two, if you, if you don't have a, a substrate sensor, you probably have a scale around somewhere, weigh a dry one, weigh a wet one, get some approximation of what kind of field capacity you're looking at there. And then as long as your blocks are properly hydrated, um, transplant and then put your micro drippers right on there and do that first watering with those because typically uh, we don't need to flush too much water through there unless that cocoa already has a really high ec or they've been sitting there stagnant if you just hydrated that block and an hour later you're transplanting it's got plenty of oxygen for those roots to work with in there um, and and the reason i say that is that you know any type of hand watering on an unrooted plant it introduces a lot of variability if you do have a way to make sure you're not giving them too much, um, that's fine. And even if you are giving them too much, it might be okay. You're just going to be waiting for a de or a decent while for a dry bag. As far as that dry bag goes, um, the reason I told you to just weigh it if you don't have a substrate sensor is because I like to see a 15 to 20% dry bag before I'm applying actual P1s. During that time, you know, if that takes five to 10 days, starting day three, I'm still going to put a tiny drop on with my micro drippers just to make sure that root zone staying aerobic and by tiny, I mean, in your one gallon, it'd be like 30 to 40 milliliters max, but I'm going to be putting on a very small amount just to keep that, uh, aerobic. And then once I've achieved, like I said, that 20%, 15 to 20% dry back, start hitting it with the P ones. If you're weighing it, just, uh, the easiest way to think about it is one gram equals one milliliter of water. So, pretty easy calculation to do. Awesome. All right. Thank you for that question, B-Town. I know you have another one here, but Diane dropped a question. Our good friend, Diane, good to see you. Um, the first one was, what's the temperature limit in vegetation? I believe that's the word we wanted here. Before the plants go in photorespiration under CO2 and LEDs. And I, Diane, I apologize if I didn't answer, ask that right. Give us some clarity if we, if we need it. Are, are you looking for the upper limit, Diane, of when plants stop transpiring due to heat? Is that kind of what we're looking at here? Perhaps. Uh, because Diane is on YouTube, yeah. typically, you know, anywhere, it depends on the amount of radiant energy the leaves are receiving. So like if we're talking about an HPS room, the ambient temp isn't going to be nearly as hot as it would be in an LED room to achieve the same response. But typically when those leaf surface temps start to go above 90, 92, then we see those stomata start to go into what would be more of a drought stress mode where they start to close back up. We slow down on transpiration and that's when we can also see, you know, a host of different issues, light bleaching, tip burn, um, general stunting in growth, foxtailings, another big one that'll happen. So if that's what you're looking for, top end, 90 to 92 leaf surface temp is really shutting down plant growth. 
Thank you for the question, Diane. Let us know if you have anything you want to add to that. Um, all right, we're going to keep it going. B-Town has another question here. Wants to know experiences with hypochlorous acid in the nutrient solution to keep the lines and drippers clean, even if your nutrient solution uh, don't even fall out. <laughs> so uh, I guess one of the big things to really clarify here is hypochlorous does help a little bit with nutrient or uh, I should say mineral buildup in your lines as it is a weak acid, but its main action is actually as a sanitizing agent. So a big way it actually helps keep people's lines clean is it it's continually sanitizing that, you know, wonderful nutrient soup that we've got sitting in our lines in this nice warm 75 to 80 degree room. And that's a good point, Mikey. <laughs> you will get root rot if your substrate temps hit super high as well. Lots of problems with running too hot. Um, but yeah, as far as hypochlorous goes, it's a sanitizing agent. So, you know, a good way to think about it is in terms of horticulture, you know, the first place I heard about it being used was in deep water culture and flood and drain systems where they're recycling their nutrient water for a week at a time. Uh, in those systems, a constant, you know, I can't remember the PPM off the top of my head, but with like a 0.08%, something like Athena's cleanse, you're looking at one, you know, 0.5 to 1.5, even two milliliters per gallon for a pretty strong solution, maybe more like the 0.5 for a daily solution. But the big thing to remember is, you know, no matter which version you're going with, what hypochlorous product, you really need to look at that concentration and see uh, what you're working with. And then, you know, like Mikey put it earlier, if you are going to start using it quite a bit, it might be worth it to look into a generator because, Right now, a lot of the chemical suppliers, um, there's there's two main uses for it out in general industry. Uh, we've got the horticulture side and then sanitation. And in a lot of commercial or like uh, medical cleaning products that hypochlorous is in, they actually mix it with bleach. So right now it is tough to go get a, a good horticultural source that doesn't have, you know, the green tax that we all complain about. Fantastic. B-Town, thank you for your question. Good to hear from you. Diane submitted another one here. Wants to know, what's better, two sprinklers in the pots, 0.5 gallon per hour, or two sprinklers, 0.3 gallons per hour for two gallon cocoa pots? Uh, personally, I'd probably go with the 2.5s or a single 1.0. Um, but it does depend on how big your room is. The 0.3s give you a little bit more control, but if you have a big room with a lot of zones, it takes you longer to put on, you know, a bigger shot with the 0.3s. So at that point, you got to make sure that you have enough time to cycle through. Like if we're going to put on a shot every 15 to 30 minutes in vegetative and P1, you want to make sure you can cycle through that with your irrigation and you're not going to run over. So if I had, if it took two minutes to do each zone and I had eight zones, and I want to do it every 15 minutes. Well, now it takes me 16 minutes to do one P1 shot. So I want to make sure you don't run into those kind of limitations. Awesome, Diane. Thank you for your question. Love it. Okay. Yeah, we're on and popping today. Um, Chris, my producer, is on today. What's going on on YouTube? I think we just did a poll, yeah? Yeah, we try to hit a poll now and again just to take the temperature of our attendees and see what they're thinking about, what they're working with. Um, so I asked, what, what are you growing in? Uh, and my choices were uh, rock wool, cocoa, and other. Um, and so the results came out 20% rock wool, 40% cocoa, and 40% other. So Seth, it begs the question. We hear about rock wool and cocoa all the time on the show. What are some other mediums that we should 
maybe know about or maybe we don't hear enough about? Um, you know, uh, rock, there's, there's a few good reasons rock wool and cocoa are the most popular. Um, you know, number one, stone wool in general is pretty easy to produce and it's readily available. Cocoa is a byproduct of the general coconut industry. Um, so the environmental consequences of using cocoa as a plant growth medium are in general pretty low other than the carbon footprint, of course, of shipping them from generally Southeast Asia or Sri Lanka, India to us here in the United States. Uh, that being said, you know, some of the other traditional medias are actually really good. Uh, peat moss, for instance, great. Uh, the only problem is we got to go strip mine peat bogs to get it. So the environmental outside of that is not that great. Um, you know, perlite has been used in the past. Straight perlite, not the most popular grade. That's super wasteful in terms of water efficiency. Um, you know, when we go look at hydroponics, we've got, you know, your hydroton clay. That's also great for deep water culture applications and flood and drain. Although both the perlite and the hydroton really limit you and your crop steering capabilities. Um, you know, people have tried out a lot of different media over the years from different mineral based mixes. Uh, generally speaking, indoor, the classic soilless mix definition is, or not necessarily mix, but soilless media is what we want. We want to have control over what nutrients the plant has access to, when it has access to them, and ensure that it has proper water holding capability, all while trying to maintain a relatively sanitary environment. We don't want to bring in any nasties with us. So, you know, when we talk about uh, a mix, you'd say maybe make for an outdoor organic bed. If we're looking at, you know, cocoa, bark mix, maybe some straw in there, like we can really go down the rabbit hole with organic inputs. And there's a lot of great ones out there that can actually build a pretty decent soil structure for your plant to grow in. Um, but when we're talking about indoor growing and controlled horticulture, where we want relatively consistent results and we want to be able to control every part of the process, rock wool and cocoa are kind of where we keep landing because of very, like I said, various economic reasons and they have the properties we're looking for. Um, and you know, one part to consider too, is with those, we've also, uh, if we use them properly, the environmental impact in terms of our runoff output is pretty low, you know, just because you are running, let's say in an organically amended bed does not mean that you have runoff going downhill from wherever your bed is. That is good for the environment. Do you, I love that. Go oh, ahead. Yeah, do, do you see uh, state by state restrictions on mediums or is it still pretty wide open? Um, can you hold on a second, Chris? I got some headphone issues going on. I couldn't really hear you there. Uh, check, check. Will do. Can you can you type that in the message, Chris? I just can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll just I'll follow up in the chat. Okay. Our producer, we gotta we gotta, he has to send his questions in by chat, just like everybody else. <laughs> um, but we got some dialogue on the different substrates here. David wrote in Grozorb with an exclamation point. So there's a lot of enthusiasm on that one. Mikey wrote in DWC, NFT, RDWC, Hydroton, float tables, soil mixes, error units are coming back around. Yeah, so different substrate. Yeah, I got a comment, David. Yeah, Grozorb. I have heard of that. I have not personally tried it, but I think people should explore and see what's out there. You know, I'm sure Grozorb can be manufactured in different ways to uh, probably monitor pore size and really regulate water content. Um, Mikey, you brought up some fun ones too. 
aero units are coming back around. Ha ha. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool things with straight, you know, hydroponics, whether it's aeroponics, deep water culture, flood trays, et cetera. Um, I think what we'll find over and over is that usually in terms of the way the cannabis plant grows on its determinate life cycle after 12, 12 hits, media like cocoa and rock will just give us the best performance and work best with how the plant develops. You know, if we've got if we want to be able to run irrigation strategies anyways, that's the optimum hydroponic growth technique. Uh, yes, and pr producer Chris wrote in here, are there state-by-state -state restrictions on medium? On um, not that I'm aware of in the US. I mean, there's certainly uh, supply chain limitations <laughs> in different areas, just with different suppliers and you know, being able to actually get different types of media. Um, other countries might have restrictions on import and use as well, but not particularly that I'm aware of right now. Uh, but that that could change. Who knows? But there's also just, uh, you really illustrated the point, there's a lot that goes into the decision of which grow medium makes the most sense. There's the control aspect, there's the consistent results aspect, and then there's the environmental aspect, but also environmental is a, is a spectrum too. Could be mm -hmm. low impact from the production standpoint but if you're shipping it from overseas that that's a footprint so yeah appreciate this overview thank you Seth. absolutely i mean it's it's all something to think about and that's that's one thing i think we all gotta kind of step back and look at even inside this you know uh soilless drip irrigation model that a lot of us are doing with either greenhouse and supplemental lighting or fully indoor there are a lot of small ways we can stay inside of efficiency and also be creative and have something to kind of own you know like your media can be something that you say hey we are committed to using only organic media we don't we don't want you know commercially manufactured rock wool or anything else that's not compostable in our backyard that's that's totally a fair stance to take and that could become important as the industry progresses definitely all right well it doesn't uh chris anything else on youtube it's not looking like it. All right. And then loving the dialogue happening in our chat here. We got some resource sharing. That's like my favorite thing. Um, all right. Well, then, Seth, you know what? We got a couple minutes left. I'm just going to make this about me for a minute. I yeah. am taking a tolerance break. I have gone 24 hours without THC. Do you have any advice for me? I'm going to go 30 days. Thoughts? It's not habit forming. That's what I heard in a movie one time. <laughs> I heard that too. <laughs> Uh, you might suffer some boredom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there was like after work yesterday, I was like, what do I do? <laughs> Mikey, the advice is stay busy. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, I'll keep you all posted, but 30 days. I'm going to go for it. A lot oh, of you can do it. I can do it. I believe, be I believe in myself. I mean, other than where you live, that might make it tough. Just walking I am in the Bay Area. Yeah, <laughs> it's it smells amazing when I leave my house. Just in it's just in the air. Yeah, and you know, I could almost you know I, you should see my weed cabinet. I actually have it taped shut. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very fortunate. Well, awesome. yeah, you gotta you gotta have some on deck for that moment. You decide, you know, thirty days is up. Yes, it, yes. and I will. There's no if. Uh, Janelle, yes, sometimes more dreams. Great point, and I actually have committed to. I'm gonna document my dreams. Ooh. every morning because they start to get kind of wild with without thc involved all right cool well if you guys see me declining over the coming weeks you know why <laughs> awesome 
Uh, Janelle started the same endeavor too. We're in this together. Let's share resources. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Takes a village. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, I think we are wrapping it up. Seth, any final words before we wrap up the show? I just keep on growing, you know, stay in it. Uh, do what you got to do. Keep your head down and go to work. I mean, it's kind of tough times out there in the industry right now for a lot of people, but uh, if you come out of the other side, you'll be stronger and more efficient, you know, and it's, it's not unique to cannabis either. It's part of any growing industry. And right now we're just uh, in a bit of a turbulent time concerning regulations and marketing or not marketing the market everywhere. But this was, you know, maybe not predictable to how bad it could be, but you can look back now and predict what the future might look like for you and start making real business plans. I think that's where, where people's heads need to be at right now. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, because, you know, I like to just focus on the plants and I have to think about that side of the business, right? And I think a lot of growers feel that way too. Yeah. No, that's great. Thank you for that encouragement. For real, like we're, we we got y'all. We're gonna get through this. I'm feeling good about 2023. I think there's gonna be a turnaround. Um, but you know, we're in this industry for reasons that are bigger than ourselves. I think for the most part. So. Mm -hmm. And you know what? The boutique market's coming back stronger than ever. The weed's getting better, and it's great. <laughs> I'm loving it. It's exciting. Amazing. All right. Well, Seth, thank you for sharing your knowledge as usual. Chris, my producer, thank you for holding it down in Ma Mandy's absence. Mandy, hope you're staying warm in Texas. Strange times right now. But uh, thank you all for joining us this week on Office Hours. We do this every Thursday, and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more, to, more about Arroyo, we dropped a couple links in the chat so you can book a demo with one of our experts, and they'll tell you all about how Arroyo can be used to improve your cultivation production process. As always, let us know if there's a topic you'd like cover in a future episode of Office Hours. You can post questions anytime in the Arroyo app. Feel free to drop us a, a chat, uh, shoot us an email at support.arroyoatmetergroup.com. Send us an email on uh, DM on Instagram. We are on all the socials. We wanna hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's conversation. It'll also live on the Arroyo YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, spread the word. Thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroyo the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroyo.io.